Matthew chapter 5, and a little bit of introduction here. You will find that on page 958 if you're following along in the Bibles that are in front of you. And we're beginning today, very exciting, a new sermon series which is on a passage of Scripture which spans three chapters of Matthew, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And so this is a very long exposition of Jesus, and we're going to be preaching sections of this between now and March 29th. And March 29th is the Sunday before Palm Sunday. So after March 29th, when we'll definitely be in a different mode. But for now, for this next season, I'm very excited, we're going to be looking at the Sermon on the Mount. It's one of the longest sort of continuous teachings of Jesus. And it's been the subject of many books, many ideas, many concepts. Some of them, I would say, are incorrect. And we're going to have to sort of sort through what is correct and incorrect in our thinking about the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I want to say one word about who the audience is. As you read this, you'll realize that the immediate audience of this are Jesus' disciples, the Twelve. But a lot of other people were there, too. So there was a larger group of disciples that were also following Jesus around. And there were other people that were following Jesus around. And so this, the audience of this sermon is definitely those who are disciples, but it's everybody, and it is us. But it has a discipleship emphasis. Um, I've been to the place where we think that the Sermon on the Mount was delivered. There's a church there. Uh, our, our church took a trip to Israel two years ago, uh, almost exactly, and we were at that place. I've been there three times now. Every time I was there, it was sunny. It was like weird. It's sunny and beautiful, a hillside with a light breeze and beautiful wildflowers growing there. And in my mind, that was really the perfect place for Jesus to climb up to a higher place where everybody could see him, everybody could hear him, and for him to sit down and begin to teach this amazing sermon. And so it's, the setting was right. The setting was right. Right on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, there's this big hill. We think that's where he was when he gave this sermon. Now, real quick, what are the purposes of this book? One one idea, because we're going to see a lot about the law, not in this particular passage, but in future Sundays, we're going to see that Jesus is going to talk about the law a lot. He's going to talk about adultery. He's going to talk about anger. He's going to talk about all sorts of, of laws. And so some people have thought that Jesus, by doing this, going up on a mountainside and preaching the law, is in effect acting like a new Moses. Does that make sense? So like Moses goes up Mount Sinai, he gets the law, he brings it down, and he tells people this is the law. And so people have seen in Jesus a parallel. This is a new Moses. He's coming with a new law, a more intense law. We're going to have to contend with that view because some people have seen in the Sermon on the Mount a way to perfect humanity by following the law more severely. But if we know anything about the rest of Scripture, we know that that never works because there's one ingredient that's failing in that, and you're looking squarely at him right now. If you had a mirror, you could look at your, your, the other squarely, at the other person that's not making that work. It's us. By human nature, by our sin, we are not capable of keeping the law, and we find that Jesus really only intensifies the law. He makes it even harder to keep. And so he might be going somewhere else with it when he talks about the law. We'll find out what that is in weeks to come. But the other purpose is to announce the kingdom. 
He talks a lot about what the kingdom of God is, what it looks like, and related to that, and this is what I want us to focus on in these next weeks, and Victoria and I have talked about what this looks like, is that this is a description of discipleship. So the Sermon on the Mount and discipleship are concepts that should go hand in hand in our mind. The Sermon on the Mount talks about what discipleship looks like. And particularly as we start, we're going to look at what are called the Beatitudes. Those are what are called an indicative description of discipleship. And real quick, another real quick, like you're thinking, there's no quick with him. What's this, you know, you keep using that word, but I don't think you know what it means. I know what it means. I just, I'll stop using it. How's that? I'll just, okay, in a, in a long form, uh, well, I want you to be aware that there's a difference of, of voice in Greek, and it's also in English. It's the indicative versus the imperative, okay? The indicative is a description of some, how something actually is. And so you would say, this indicates that. So an indicative means this is just the reality of what is. An imperative is a command, which I am often giving to my children, like go clean your room. That's an imperative. Not your room is clean. That's an indicative, and it's also not true. <laughs> but the imperative is go clean your room. The indicative is your room is a mess. Okay. So Jesus in the Beatitudes is often using the indicative voice. He's describing what disciples already look like when he is telling us the Beatitudes, and that's important. Um, the Beatitudes are where we begin. They're beautiful. You know these, I think. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. It starts with the word blessed, which could mean happy, but there's another definition that we will get to. These were common things. Beat Jesus didn't invent the Beatitudes. They existed well before him. A lot of literature have Beatitudes. Blessed are these people, or happy are these people, because they do things like this or that, or because these things have happened to them, or some result will come to them. Uh, but So Jesus is actually appro appropriating or using a well-known communication form when he starts with the Beatitudes. So as I read, I'd like you to listen with an ear towards discipleship. Try to figure out how many indicatives you hear. A lot of these indicatives are called future indicatives. They talk about what things will look like in the future. Um, and so listen as I read for a description of what it looks like to be a disciple. So let's go to our reading. Matthew 5, 1 through 12. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. 
Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We ask that you would add your blessing to it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So, a few notes about what you just heard. One, and we see this uh, in Matthew, as we've seen before. Matthew has an audience that he cares a lot about. It's probably a Jewish audience. Often in Matthew, he says things like, this was done so that prophecy would be fulfilled. And the way the Beatitudes are laid out, and I invite you to look at them right now in your Bible, you'll find that they are, even if, this is really large print, so maybe you can even see from there, that they're set off as, you can't see up there, they're set off as poetry. Do you see that? They're indented in a certain way. They're not like in a regular paragraph of text. Um, Every Bible is different, so some Bibles may not have it this way, but the Bible that in front of you definitely does have it that way. It's indented, and it's set off in a poetic sense, right? Or almost like it's a hymn or a song or a psalm. And so you see this kind of formatting in, in other parts of the Bible, like the psalms and, and things like that. Now, just to be clear, the original text that we found these in have none of this. They don't have, they don't have verse numbers. They don't have quotation marks. They don't have question marks. They don't have periods, commas, or semicolons. They have words. They don't even have spaces between the words, some of them. It's very interesting. It's just a string of letters, and the people reading them would have had to kind of figure out where the sentences begin and end. Um, but in our sort of wisdom as people who have interpreted and read the Bible and then printed it, we set this off as poetry. Why is that important? Well, in, in Hebrew, especially in Hebrew poetry, they're always looking for some kind of balance and some kind of structure. So I want you to look at verse 3 and verse 10 because those are the ones that have the same promise. The promise is different for all the other Beatitudes, but these ones promise the same thing. Blessed are, this is verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, right? Everything else gets other promises, all very good promises. But then you get to verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Oh, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so you have almost a frame around the rest of the Beatitudes. The first Beatitude and the, the last. Now you look at 11, and 11 looks like a new Beatitude, but really it's kind of a closing Beatitude or it's an expansion of the last Beatitude. But basically you have this frame, 3 and 10, have the same promise, the kingdom of heaven, and also that's a, a present indicative. It's, it's now. The, theirs is the kingdom of heaven now. The rest of them, verses 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9, which are all in the middle, and notice there's two groups of three. We'll kind of get at that later. There's six verses or beatitudes in between 3 and 10. Those are all in the future indicative. They will be comforted. They will inherit the earth. They will be filled, and so on and so forth. And so a very interesting question is, did Jesus, when he was saying all this, did he have in mind this structure? Or did Matthew, as he wrote it, kind of sort of massage it into place? We don't know. I, I tend to think that Jesus spoke it this way, and that Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit, remembered it very well and said, gosh, 
even not only was Jesus saying amazing things, he was structuring his thoughts as he said them in this really classic way. And this is the sort of, this is the sort of structured poetry that a reader who had grown up reading Hebrew scripture would have gone, oh, that's beautiful. That has some value. Somebody took some thought to structure it this way. And there must be something valuable in the middle here. So you have this frame on either side, and there's like a, it's like a treasure chest, and you open it, and inside you find this treasure, which is indeed what we do find. We find the treasure inside these Beatitudes. Now, you may be wondering about this one word, and it's a bit repetitious, the word blessed. What does that mean? What does it mean? Now, some... Bible translations may have happy. Does anyone have happy in their Bible translations? They're similar concepts, but blessed is a bit stronger, isn't it? The Greek word behind this is makarios. It does mean blessed, or it could mean happy. It could mean in a joyful or happy state. Now, this is the definition that is kind of linked to the Beatitudes, but this is the definition I want us to work with, because this word happens so often, I think we need to define it, is that blessedness that is described here is the distinctive religious joy which comes to a person from their share in the salvation of the kingdom of God. I'm going to have to say that one again, obviously, right? Uh, blessedness, to be blessed, is a distinctive religious joy which comes to a person from their share, their stake in the salvation of the kingdom of God. So this blessedness is this state of joy where you realize the kingdom is mine and salvation is mine. Is it happiness? Well, sure, it's happiness, but it's a lot deeper than happiness. It's like all your, all your biggest problems, your biggest, biggest problems, they have a solution in Jesus now. And so, yes, life has challenges, life is difficult, but in the largest sense, God has come through for you. God has promised to save you through Jesus. You are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. You're covered. You're a child of God. And so this is this joy that Jesus is talking about. This, this is what it, you will have. This is who you are. Remember, again, this is an indicative. This is who you are already. We're going to have to talk about that because... Um, we have to kind of maybe deal with the honesty that we don't always feel this way. We don't experience every day of our lives as this complete distinctive religious joy which comes from a share in the salvation of the kingdom of God. I don't wake up every morning with that on my lips. I don't. Maybe you do. If you do, great. That's good. But I think in reality, this is something that we have to live into. We have to learn from. So, one of the challenges that I think we have with the Beatitudes, honestly, is it seems like they're about somebody else. That's always how I've read them, and that's a mistake. So I'll, I'll own that mistake right now. The reason is because it starts off in a very strange way for me, but the most important way. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And for the longest time, for me, that meant 
somebody who just didn't have a good spirit. Like, I didn't know. I, somebody who didn't know how to pray or somebody who didn't have a spiritual experience or something like that or, or who just, I don't know. Uh, and maybe it's because I grew up middle class and so the idea of being poor in general is distant from me. And it's, good, it's probably good for everybody to be poor at some season in their life. Um, I guess I was poor at one point. I remember when I got my very first paycheck from a real job. I could not believe it, so that was like a shock to me. My first job at, yeah, at IBM, that's right. And I was like, wow, I cannot believe how much money that is. And I went to Burger King, and, uh, and always I just ordered a hamburger, you know, because that's, you know, budget. And they're like, do you want cheese on your hamburger? They, they had to ask that at the register. And I was like, yes, I will. <laughs> I can afford that 20 cents now. I will take that cheese. And it was all down, downhill from there. The debt started to accrue from that point on. It's funny how you can make a lot of money and then live beyond your means. As a single person, it was crazy. So that was, then I had to learn not only about poverty, but about discipline in finances. Uh, that's another story. So, but this, these always seem like they were about other people. And what I want us to see today is that these are really about us. Yes, I mourn. Yes, I can be meek. Yes, I hunger and thirst for righteousness, but not a lot, right? These sound like other people. These sound like other people problems and other people solutions. But really, when you dig into this, you'll find that this is about us. And it's an indicative description of what a disciple's life looks like. And I want to focus the most of our time on just the first one because it really sets the tone for all the rest. And let's read it again. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, how could they be blessed? If you're poor in spirit, how can you experience this joy? It's a bit of a paradox. In fact, it's been called a paradox. It, it is. How can I experience this ineffable joy when I'm poor in my spirit? And so we need to figure out what poor in spirit means. The word poor means poverty. That's what it means. In spirit doesn't mean the Holy Spirit, and it doesn't mean deficient spiritually. I want, to, I want to read to you what Martin Lloyd-Jones said. He's a famous Welsh preacher. He wrote this about being poor in the Spirit. He says, There is no one in the kingdom of God who is not poor in spirit. You all got that? He's talking about everybody. Everyone is poor in spirit if they are in the kingdom of God. He said, It is the fundamental characteristic of the Christian and of the citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Every other characteristic is the result of this one, of being poor in spirit. You are poor in spirit, I am poor in spirit. Why? Well, let's find out. What it means is that we come to Jesus as people who have no spiritual strength at all. Are you beginning to see where this is going? I'm going to go on. We say things like Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We say, wretched person that I am, 
Who will separate me from this body of death like the Apostle Paul? Or like that famous hymn we say, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. This is the upside-down kingdom, the paradox. We come to Jesus as poor sinners. We're wretched and we're weak and we're empty and we're disheveled and we're in grief and we're in sorrow and we're in anxiety and depression and addiction and we are so completely broken that we honestly have no hope at all that we'll ever be able to put things together again with our own power. That's to be poor in spirit. That's to be a Christian. You come to Jesus not with all your strength and all your power and all your success and all your confidence. You don't come to Jesus that way. You come to him as a wretch. And you come to him saying, I'm empty and broken. And Jesus will fill me up. So there is no other blessing that comes to us unless we first come as people poor in spirit. But look at the promise, and this is the paradoxical promise, even in this very first beatitude. And all of the beatitudes flow from this one, and all of the Sermon on the Mount flows from this one right here. It all makes sense if we get this one right. Blessed are the poor in spirit, If you can be poor in spirit and come to Jesus in that way, then what? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Is that all? I mean, like, you want a new car on top of that, you know, or a vacation to the Riviera? You don't, right? You can't add anything to that. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What else could you want? How else could you have any more joy because of your share of the kingdom of heaven? So everything flows from this one domino. When this domino falls, all the rest begin to fall. And that kind of brings us to the point that I was making earlier, and we're going to make it over and over again as we get further in the Sermon on the Mount, that the reality reality of the Sermon on the Mount is not that Jesus brings new law like a new Moses in the expectation that we'll be able to keep it. If we come as people who are poor in spirit, we also come as people who say, I can't keep the law. I've tried, i failed. I need something else, like the Holy Spirit, that will give me the strength to do it. I come to you not seeking your reward, but I come seeking your forgiveness. And the reward follows on, the kingdom of heaven is now yours. So Jesus is not a new Moses, and the Sermon on the Mount is not a new Ten Commandments. When he talks about the law, he talks about it in an intensifying way that drives us even further onto our knees at the base of the cross seeking God's mercy because we say to ourselves, well, if that's what it means, nobody can keep it. That's the point. You can't keep it. You need Jesus. You need the cross. So I want you to... I want to work through these beatitudes, but I want to work through them in the indicative way. And I want to talk about you. When I'm talking about you, I'm also talking about me. But I'm going to say you, and by that actually I mean all of us, okay? Is I want us to look at the indicative sense and tell you something about yourself that maybe you don't know. You kind of know it. On the edges you know it. 
but maybe you haven't. And some of these you definitely know, and some of them you don't know. And this is what you may not know, is that you mourn, right? Some of you know this. You mourn over lost ones. You mourn over the world. Well, you will be comforted. This is the promise. You will be comforted. These are people who are disciples. These are people who have come in poorness of spirit, in poverty of spirit. You are meek. Some, some of you, this, you didn't know this about yourself. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't, I, I'm saying that because I didn't know this about myself. It means gentle and kind and soft and open to others. You will inherit the earth. Which is actually like second, that's a consolation prize, because if you already have the kingdom of heaven, I don't know what good the earth is. Except the kingdom of heaven comes to the earth. That's a different story. It's still pretty good, though. It's like the, it's like the trips of the Riviera, maybe. Did you know that you hunger for righteousness and justice? You see the world and you ask why it cannot be more just? You will be satisfied someday. This is who you are. This is who you are. I have to believe it. This is who you are. As a follower of Jesus, this is who you are. This is what God made you to be when you came to him in poorness of spirit and said, save me. You are merciful. You forgive. You give people the benefit of the doubt. You do not hold on to grudges. You will be shown mercy by the Father. Did you know that you are pure in heart? Because you're poor in spirit. If you're poor in spirit, you're pure in heart. Not because you made yourself that way, but because God did. You do not think that highly of yourself, which is an avenue to all sorts of sin, and your heart is made pure by Jesus' work, and you will see God because only the pure can see God. You see that? Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. You are a peacemaker. You long for the end of violence, the end of unnecessary conflict, the end of war. You long to be reconciled to those who have hurt you. You will be called a child of God. And you are persecuted for the name of Jesus. There is no way you could live even a little bit of this life without some pushback from people who are opposed to what God is doing in the world. Yours, again, is the kingdom of heaven. And you know what? There could be a sermon for each one of these, but we would never end, you know, like, so we're going to, I wish we could actually preach one sermon on each beatitude. It's been done at other churches. Um, maybe in a few years we'll try that. But for now, we're going to get through the Sermon on the Mount by March 29th, because, you know, because we have to. No. Now, you heard me say that about you, and some of you were like, I don't think he knows me. I don't think I know myself. Who laughed? That was good. That's so true. Yoshi's got good timing. Got super timing. We need to give it up here with the rim shot. All right. Um, this is how the indicative works. This is how this description of discipleship works. On one level, it says, This is what you are because you're a follower of Jesus. And this is the spiritual gifting of the Holy Spirit. This is God's gift to you and all these things. This is God's promise to you. But on the other level, you look at it and you say, I haven't quite made it in all these ways that you're talking about. 
And so the other way the indicative works is it's, it draws us to say, I'm not there yet. I have some things to work on. God help me in that. Um, some of you might say, well, I, I, uh, you said I was merciful, but I'm not as merciful as all that. I, I still have some grudges I'm keeping, right? Uh, or the pastor is naive for thinking I have a pure heart. They should see my browser history, you know. He wouldn't be too happy with that. But this is what discipleship looks like. And you say, I'm not all the way there yet. I'm not there yet. And I, I think most of us realize that we're not all the way there. Even though I said this is a description of who you are, let's be honest with ourselves. We all have work to do in this. It's different work for each one of us. And, um, and it's work, not work that saves us, because that's done on the cross, but it's work that is needed to get closer to Jesus and walk more fully in his ways. And that's our goal for this sermon series, too, is that each time we look at a different part of the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to be called to a different aspect of discipleship, and we're going to be called to examine our own life, and we're going to be called to say, where's the gap here, and what can I do? How can I close this gap with God's help, with the help of my community, with the help of an accountability partner, with the help of prayer, with the help of some spiritual practices, okay? So growing deeper in discipleship, this is like a newsflash, it's work. I'm sorry, there's work. <laughs> there's work involved, you know? It's like telling my kids to clean their room. It just doesn't clean itself. It's maybe an indicative, but there's an imperative too. We have to work. I have to work. There are areas where I can definitely get closer to the indicative that Jesus is describing in all these Beatitudes. In fact, in all of them. So we're all going to be hearing about discipleship as we read about the Sermon on the Mount in the next few. I'm very excited about it. And I'm just excited about the work that we can do on it. I'm excited if people are willing in the future to share what work that they've done and they want to encourage others. I would like us to take time maybe for people to give testimony about how they have deepened their discipleship as we're on this journey together. But this is the season that we're on right now as our church, growing deeper into discipleship, using the Sermon of the Mount, on the Mount as sort of a map for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you for this, the beginning of what Jesus had to say along the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And Lord, pray that it works into us, works on our hearts, and drives us deeper towards you. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.